Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 3, Chapter 4 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 3, read by Baird Brucher. Chapter 4 A Goodbye I was accepted as a pupil of Alcuin with a small class of older boys. Alcuin appointed Derek as a teacher, and resuming such duties seemed to steady him, though he often paused and stared. But no merchants came with lapis. An early winter came, with sleet and frost. Because it was not fit to travel, we remained. Alcuin loved to speak and write with correctness and precision, as well as with playful abandon. He wrote poems of wordplay, his nicknames for people, such as his beloved friend Arno the Eagle, were sometimes teasing interpretations of their given names. His Latin is expert, and he had a fair command of Greek and a bit of Hebrew. In our first lesson he had me write the following from dictation. Correctness in language is evidence of correctness in thought. Heresy arises from wrong words. Words are the voices of ideas. The word carries the idea like an eggshell containing its yolk. Language can be fragile. Language can be shattered by misquoting or mistranslating. Language can be shattered, and in turn shatters sound logic, which gives rise to breaking off of heresies that divide the true church. Right intellect, well-educated, must protect our use of words as carefully as a nest protects the egg. And we must be like the good mother Robin, who makes a strong nest protected in the boughs. For the wind of heresy blows strong, and the branches shake, but our education is strong, and fixes our understanding. One of Alcuin's enjoyable teaching methods is to ask riddles, and we made up riddles too. Our group of boys is delighted by sessions that go along these lines. What is a year? A cart with four wheels. What horses pull it? The sun and the moon. How many palaces has it? Twelve. I have seen a woman with an iron head, a wooden body, and a feathered tail carrying death. The woman is a soldier's arrow. Of what does man never tire? Prophet. Sometimes, when I am alone with him, I try out my own inventions. What are three things that roar? The lion, the wind, and fire. Three things that fell a tree. Wind, fire, and an axe. A dull tool. A hammer. I thought the last very clever. I was calling Carl's grandfather, Carl the Hammer Martel, a dull tool. I mingled in innocent ones. Two sharp things that cause food to be brought. A scythe and hunger. Cause of man's death. It renews its life. A snake. Two dangerous beauties. A rose and... He put his finger to his cheek. His gleaming hazel eyes crinkled with amusement. He let out his breath in surprise and said with an expression of merriment and disbelief, A queen? I smiled back at him and nodded. He shook his head, but the smile didn't die on his lips until I asked, A lion in the sky? He looked puzzled and more troubled than I expected. 
A lion in the sky, he repeated. He licked his lower lip. I can't think. An eagle. I was proud to have stumped him. His cheeks flushed, and there was a choking sound in his throat. I asked if he was all right, and his eyes hardened. Of course. He then dismissed me. There was something to it, but I didn't know what. My head filled with new ways of thinking about words, about language, about ideas themselves. That everything is begun as an idea in the mind of God, and that everything we know, we know first as an idea. Everything begins as a thought. A flicker of understanding caught flame in my mind and grew brighter each day. Lutgard would find me in the inner courtyard by the fountain with three dogs, such poor guards, curled at my feet. I told her all I learned, babbling in a rush of enthusiasm, getting myself twisted up and confused in my newness because my thoughts were like a bowl of ingredients not yet stirred by experience. She held her hand up to stop me and raised her sharp chin. You seem to be saying words are as powerful as kings. The king rules by law, and laws are words. The king makes the law. He is the speaker of those words. I was not a good debater, and in my newness her questions confused and disturbed me. I wanted her to be excited with me. I replied, Before there was a king, there was an idea of a king. A king is merely a man, and people don't bow to him as a man, but because he bears the aura, he bears the idea of kingship. She smiled. He bears arms and an army of men in chainmail bearing swords. These things are real. They are tangible. The body of a hanged enemy is not an idea, but a tangible fact. I struggled to respond, frustrated, but she sensed my disappointment and put her cool hand on mine. I looked at her confident face and felt the warmth of our friendship. I said, Your point is valid. There's so much I don't know. You only raise more questions I must ask. I was often curious about how Alcuin really felt about Carl. For some reason, I despised Carl more every day. I tried to question Alcuin, though my own ideas were inarticulate. I asked Alcuin what would happen to those men and boys who refused to swear allegiance to the king. Would they be measured against a sword? He raised his eyebrows in surprise. Of course not. They will lose the protection of the king and be outside the law, that is all. Isn't the oath for the king's protection? Yes, but it works both ways. The king is the protector of the people. And who protects the people from the king, if he abuses his power? Alcuin looked at me sternly. As long as the king is just, as Karl is beyond any king in Christendom, the people are loyal. You've already seen what happens when a king is unjust as in Kent. He is quickly deposed. And you saw the horror of civil war there. There is nothing more terrible than the scourge of civil war. He cocked his head and became mild again. The blessings of a strong, just ruler cannot be overstated. What alternative do you propose? What alternative is there? There is no peace without the strength of leadership. It is the nature of men to engage in conflict, and a dispenser of justice is a good and necessary thing. What is it you seek? I lowered my head, my thoughts confused. I don't know. At Dunard, I met a man who should have been king, a wise and gentle spirit. He was banished to the monastery. 
I long for such modesty and godliness in a king. The meek shall inherit the earth, but they do not rule it. I met his gaze. Do you ever feel you are compromising something of your ideals to be here? Of course not. He turned a bit pink. Then he sighed and shook his head. It is my greatest honour to serve. I will stay at the king's pleasure. Of course, I would like to retire from my cares and become an abbot. I make that request frequently. I am sure the time will come soon. I felt some satisfaction to know that Alcuin's real desire was to leave the court. But Lutgard and I continued to argue. Her voice seemed harder, slightly metallic, as she enunciated her words with an increasing accent of the Frankish tongue, her vowels short and her consonants heavy. That Aquin is quite rude, isn't he? she asked. How so? Presuming to tell the king what to do. Criticizing his stern, strong ways and converting the Saxons. If Karl is stern with his own people... How much more strict should he be with the pagan enemy? I was rather insulted for him. The king puts up with it out of his generosity. He is the king's own teacher, I said. The king is not a boy at school. Alcuin quotes proverbs. For lack of guidance, a people falls. Security lies in many counsellors. She rolled her eyes. Alcuin says, Alcuin says, listen to you. A cloud moved across the sun. Surely at least you agree with Alcuin's point about the conversions. Force is not the way to convert pagans or control a people, I said. Power must be exerted. The king must take control. Otherwise he won't stay king for long. He rules by the number of battles he has won and by dispensing justice. Justice must be enforced, ultimately, by the power of life and death. I can quote Proverbs too. Where there are no oxen, the crib remains empty, but large crops come through the strength of the bull. I replied, That is only what seems to be. Karl is exerting his rule in other ways, more important ways. He reforms the money and taxes, he reforms the weights and measures, builds roads, develops crops, or encourages their development. He builds schools and sends them books. His real power is through the scholarship of his administration. Education is the source of his power his own education, through which he has learned how to make these reforms, and the education that he advances throughout the kingdom. That's the lasting source of power. And he doesn't do this alone. He isn't a lone soldier with a shield and sword burning pagan temples. He has a government and a school of leadership, books by past leaders like Cicero that instruct him. He isn't doing it by himself. Lutgard's lip curled, as if tasting vinegar. Alcuin. Now my anger did rise. What have you got against him? He presumes much, and his false humility, and his little mottos and nicknames, and his goading. For Strada doesn't care for him, and neither do I. She was looking through the eyes of her mistress. A drop of icy water fell on my heart. I tried to look into her face, but her eyes were fixed on the trembling trees. She would not look at me. Because I was young, anger rose in me rather than sadness. I thought you of all people would think for yourself, I said. I thought the same of you. She stood, taking away from me the angry pleasure of being the one to break off the conversation. We should not talk of these things any more. Now my heart pumped a river of cold water because I took this as a rejection of all my thoughts and feelings. 
Only later did I understand she meant that as a form of kindness to end our argument. But anger is not hot and burning, but cold and freezing, and I turned cold against my only friend. Autumn slides by in drizzly days, and the breath of winter frosts the grass. Blutgard and I meet less frequently, and briefly when we did meet. Though my anger quickly cooled, I didn't know how to renew our warmth, until this occurrence two nights ago. I was alone with Alcuin in his office, when there was a rapid, urgent knock on the door, and without waiting for response, Fredegis stepped in. He glanced at me with hardly a nod. His face was grave, and he turned to Aquin, standing close. I have terrible news about Paulinus. Aquin gestured for him to continue. He has, God helped him, tried to take his own life. Aquin raised his hands, then settled them on Fredegus's shoulders. Does he ask for me? He's in such a terrible state. He isn't coherent, changing his mind moment to moment. I was able to get him to the infirmary, and we bandaged his arms. He's in bed now, restless, trying to pray and crying in turns. Alcuin put on his cloak. I'll come now. Uninvited, I followed. They had forgotten about me and didn't notice. The infirmary was dark, with just a lamp burning on the wall which lit up Polinus's tear-stained face and left all else in shadow. I stood near the door with Fredegus, and Alcuin went to the bed and pulled a stool close to Polinus, who sat on the bench shifting restlessly, stroking his bandaged arms. Next to him, and against the wall, Derek lay prone on the bed, his eyes closed and his hands clasped on his chest. "'Tell me why you've done this to a creature of God?' Alcuin asked. Polinus's breath shook as he spoke in broken fragments. "'For some time now, the burden of my sins has weighed on me, and now our dear father has been struck down. Something in me Gave way. You are hardly scarred by sin. To me you always glow with righteousness. You deny yourself much. Perhaps even too much. I can control my actions. I can control what enters my mouth. I can control the diligence of my work and the steadiness of my effort. But my thoughts... My mind is black with the tar of sin. My thoughts... I can't control the vile deeds my mind imagines. My pride, my arrogance... My shameless lust. I disgust myself. He cried, shrinking into his tears. His face screwed up and contorted with pain. Alcuin waited, then asked, Do you know what Augustine says on the question of whether one should kill oneself in order to stop sinning? His breath shook. He said it was wrong. It is the greatest sin to destroy the gift of life. But how can I bear it? Paulinus choked on a stifled sob. You are a Christian. I fear you know little of what that means. I love Christ with all my heart, Paulinus said. But are you redeemed? I pray for my salvation. He gave a shudder, and silent tears spilled down his face. Tell me, what do you think it feels like to be redeemed? What does redemption feel like? Imagine it, with all your might. It must feel like a cloud lifting on the horizon, a sun breaking brightly through the storm. More. As if I were on top of the water instead of under its heavy surface. 
more. Feel the redemption inside you. I would feel as if a yoke were lifted off me, as if I were riding the oxen instead of pulling the plough myself. Then tell me, you who are a Christian redeemed in the church, do you feel redeemed? Alcuin asked. I have never felt it. But you are redeemed. You are redeemed, but you deny yourself the wonderful gift. My sins, he flushed, and more tears silenced him. You're redeemed now. You always have been, and yet you close your heart to the gift of this light, wallowing in guilt. Christ, who loves you, has lifted the guilt from your shoulders. Open your eyes, open your heart, and feel the redemption of Christ's love for you. Polinus shuddered, so that the bench rattled, and then suddenly he was ill. I felt the relaxation of his body, as if the room suddenly warmed, as if the fire had been stoked. His face, red, then white, took on a pink glow. His eyes opened wide, his mouth fell open, and slowly dawned into a blissful smile. I feel it. I feel it. He straightened up, seeming to slightly rise into the air. He took Alcuin's hand. Polinus's face beamed forth in transfiguration. Alcuin began to recite Pater Noster. And we all joined in, our voices hushed but strong, filling the little room. I am ready, he said. I am ready to live. Yes, live and find eternal life. We crept out in silence and went separate ways, Alcuin forgetting me to return to his office, and I in wonder saw the moon bright overhead, the stars blazing in glory, and the wonder of God filled my soul. I too had not thought about redemption, for all my arguments about the power of the church had not thought of this its greatest power and reason for existence. I didn't have the chance to speak with Alcuin, but I had no quarrel with Lutgard now. I knew I loved her as a sister, and my anger was vain and trivial. It was nothing. The next night we met as usual, and I was eager to forgive and renew our friendship. When she sat beside me, I took her hand at once and said, Our quarrel must end. I've discovered the simple and glorious strength of our faith. I want only your friendship. She looked at me with her frank gaze, but only smiled weakly and looked down with a sigh. What is it? She lifted her head and looked hard in the distance. Vestrada is gravely ill. To my shame, I didn't immediately regret that. I blamed Vestrada for our fight, for all my troubles because Vestrada had turned her against Acuin. Are you sure? Yes, there's no mistaking it. She grows weaker day by day. I didn't respond, but waited to be inspired. Dutgard was very troubled, and I didn't want to be insensitive. I merely said, This saddens you very much. She pursed her lips grimly and hesitated also, finally saying, Vestrada has been the mother I never had. Then I understood, and remorse filled me. She leaned over and put her head on my chest. I put my arms around her. Without her I'll be lost. I don't know what I'll do. And what will be my place? I knew Carl acquired wives the way some men acquired horses. Vestrada was at least his third. He'll find a new wife quickly, and he will serve her. 
Certainly you won't be turned out. It will be strange, and I was just growing complacent and used to things here as they were. I wish things wouldn't change. I held her tight. You have my friendship, and that will not change. She wiped away a few tears and straightened up. Thank you. It has been hard. I felt stricken, understanding my own fault in our argument. I have been hard, and I grieve that I haven't been a friend these last few weeks. I can only beg your forgiveness. I forgive you, of course, dear little brother. A few tears slipped down my cheek. She wiped them away with a wan smile and said, I must return to her. She needs my comfort often, and I try to do what I can to give her ease. She is in much pain. Does Carl know? So far we've kept it a close secret. Please tell no one. She can't bear her weakness. I won't tell. She stood and we parted. I went to the church, finding Derek and Polinus praying together. Then I stood beside them and prayed that nothing further would break the bond between me and my dear sister. Carl's daughter, Rotrude, is a serious, studious girl who loves to look to the sky at night and learn of the stars and planets. On the dark winter nights when the sun set early, we, my classmates and teachers, and Rotrude and I, go out to gaze at the heavens. We learned of the five planets in the Zodiac. Alcuin knew much of the pagan myths about constellations, about Venus, who plays such a prominent role in his favourite poem, the Aeneid. Alcuin struggles with his love of pagan literature. He doesn't forbid it, we study the graceful Latin of Virgil and Cicero, and we read how St. Augustine at first considered their eloquence a sign of superiority over Christian writing before he accepted the Bible. Yet Alcuin isn't comfortable with his enjoyment of these writings. He apologizes for it. I looked at the planets, named after the pagan gods, and considered. I wondered if Carl would seek to rename them. Carl has renamed the twelve months of the year to rid them of their pagan names. Instead, he names them after the work activities of each month, haymaking, wine-pressing, etc. He is ever the reformer, but eventually I was not impressed. I am not enamoured of changing everything to make it modern and reject the past. I felt the fullness of time as we gazed at the stars. The world is six thousand years old, and there are many Christians who believe this is the last age of man, though Scots in general don't agree with that. I felt close to these men of past ages, and I wondered if there might be future ages we can't imagine before Christ's destiny for us is fulfilled. In recent times, due to the scholarship of the Venerable Beat, we've come to date time by the years since Christ's life on earth. They call the present Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord, and the previous years B.C., before Christ. There might be a day when just as we are forgetting our pagan ancestors, scholars of the future might even date time some other way and forget A.D. and B.C. I thought that would be a terrible shame, not only to forget our Saviour, if that is possible, but to forget those who believed in him, to forget all of us and the generations who lived for his grace and for the blessings of faith. I would not forget the pagan men who named the red planet Mars or beautiful Venus or the months of Julius for a long-dead emperor, and I longed not to be forgotten though I have done no great thing, and am only the humblest novice. I don't have any idea what I would want to be remembered for.
just that I was here. One cold, dark night in Lent, we stood on a hill outside the city wall where Rotrude loved to go to view the sky. Venus and Jupiter shone enormously. Suddenly, a shooting star streaked across the space between the two planets. It broke in half, two blazing flares before flashing away. The next day, Vastrada died. The grim days of Lent were mournful, and just as Lutgard lost her mother figure, so I soon lost my father figure. My beloved teacher, Alcuin, was given the post of abbot in faraway Tours, his desire fulfilled, and then a final loss. And I didn't know how final it was when I sat with Lutgard by the fountain and she spoke these words. Carl would like to marry me. I held her hand, which was so cool and soft. I felt aware of her purple sleeves, the gold embroidery at her wrists, the fur trim on her blue mantle. I realized she has slowly been becoming this, a queen, all along. She could not disappear into the tapestried rooms of the court, into royal duties and protocols, into hunts and travels, into furs and jewels, into dangers and intrigues, spying and secrets, and into motherhood of his children, into his bed, and into the nurturing of his outsized worldly ambitions. You can't. You can't possibly, I said. You are perverse, she said, with a catch in her voice. You know all I wanted was to marry into the court. This is the highest honor any woman in the wide world could ever be granted. I am humbled by it. I can only hope to be worthy of the trust of the greatest man in Christendom, the greatest man in history. He is not worth your little finger, I exclaimed. She smiled her rueful, ironic smile. I don't know what's more bizarre. How well you think of me, or how little you think of him. You can't do it. You can't go through with it. How can I refuse the will of the king, even if I wanted to? She asked. Then I asked this. Do what you wish, what you truly wish. Forget his armies and his absurd power. You have a will. Is it your will to disappear into the court? I won't disappear. I fear you will. It is my will, my wish, my heart's desire to marry him. This is goodbye, then, I said. I hope not. You know it is. She squeezed my hand. Then she leaned against me and put her head on my shoulder. I will make sure you aren't forgotten, she said. I think you may as well forget me. I wish you were angry with me. That would be easier. I am angry, she exclaimed. She lifted her face and tears fell down her cheeks. I am most angry. I took her by the shoulders and held her in front of me. We gazed at each other. Her tear-filled eyes blazed in the sunshine. Then I simply walked away from her and she made no attempt to follow me. At the wedding banquet, Lutgard was present with the falcon from our river journey. She was delighted. This inspired me. That night I wrote her a letter, knowing she has been learning to read. It was a poem. My partner, the hunter, is a noble bird, soaring like a queen 
and yet is never proud, treats me as an equal, though has all skills I lack, returns to me upon my calling word, and knows me among the motley crowd. Never our friendship for any spite detract, like a queen but never proud a word, would ever wound or need to be called back, despite her cares and daily hard concerns. My inmost heart is always clearly heard, and every day I feel my heart's sore lack, until her grace on soaring wings returns. I gave it to Fredegus to give to her. I didn't get a reply. She was busy with many cares, and sudden news from Rome threw the court into upheaval. Pope Hadrian had died, and the new Pope Leo had been attacked by enemies and thrown into a prison. He asked for Carl's help. They blinded Leo and injured his tongue, but he made an incredible recovery, and he made a daring escape from his chains. All the schoolboys acted it out, playing the great hero Pope Leo. The court went to meet him so that Carl could hear his case. I was vexed that Carl was powerful enough to judge a pope. From the meeting with Leo, they went on to Tours. I wasn't with them, as Derek was too frail to go or for me to leave him. He was balanced on the very edge of sanity, perched there, ever precarious, but holding on. I wondered how to broach to him the possibility of returning to Iona. It had been a year since we parted from the other monks. In June, a strange frost made a bitter landscape over Francia. Within this cold time... I received a letter from Tours that drove the bitterness deep into my heart. Dear little sparrow, let this letter kiss you with peace, and let me utter with ink-stained fingers what I would utter with my lips if you were here. I was going to write to you, recommending you travel here, but time has passed too quickly before I could do so. The Queen arrived three weeks ago, and today the King is preparing to return to Aix, alas, on his own, and surrounded by loved ones. The Queen will not be returning with him, for her soul has returned to its home. I have heard about the frosts biting our crops and vineyards, and this cold cruelty is a sign. She passed with the sweating sickness, burning amid this cold grip, as if God himself were trying to cool her fever. But nothing could be done. My sorrow is great, and I know the news must grieve you, for I noted you and the Queen were special friends. I do notice things, old and feeble as I am. Know that God has taken her to his soft bosom, and you will see her again in the hereafter. We will all pray with vigorous and holy energy. I hope time will lessen the sorrow of this day. My heart goes out to you. Yours in loving friendship, Alcuin. This was the first letter I'd ever received in my life. The words were fixed in eternal ink, and nothing would ever change them. I sat silently in my room, next to Derek, who was sleeping like a grey ghost by my side. The cold, damp air hurt my throat. I thought there was no one to talk to as I sat staring at the shadows for an hour. Then a soft rap on the door. Isaac entered. I heard. He put his arms around me. I couldn't weep, but I shivered, my teeth chattering. Derek woke and lifted his head. Where are you going? Where are we going? He asked absently from a dream. We're going to Rome, Isaac said. To be continued. If you enjoy Continuous Dream, 
please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. For other ways to support the show, please see the show notes or visit www.continuousdream.com. Thanks for listening.